Aren't those kids awesome? Wasn't that great? It was so good. And kids, there's something about a kid's perspective on life that is refreshing and it reminds us, you know, not to take life too seriously. But what's interesting is they were describing Christmas. You probably picked up on this. They were describing, you know, what you hear in a typical Christmas story, but they started to, to define or describe scenes that you would see at a nativity scene, right? I mean, that's kind of our image, where our image of Christmas comes from in a lot of ways. And a few years ago, speaking of nativity scenes, we had a really good neighbor, amazing lady, so loving and so kind. She was getting rid of a bunch of stuff that she wanted to throw away. And so she was like, hey, I want to give you some things. I want to gift you something. And so she gave our family a porcelain nativity set. Now, we've already got several nativity sets. And it wasn't like this one was any special or different than any other nativity set. But I know why she gave it to me. She knows I'm a pastor. And she was, I know what she was thinking. She's thinking, there's no way the pastor is going to throw away that nativity set. Well, I, I didn't throw it all away. I did throw most of it away, but I, I kept one item, okay, from the nativity set. I kept this little guy, sweet little porcelain, waving, smiling baby Jesus. What kind of monster would you have to be to throw this guy away? And so for the last six or seven years, I just, it's in my top drawer in my office in December the 1st, I get it out and I put it on my desk as a reminder of that sweet neighbor that we love and miss so much, but also as a reminder of what we celebrate when it comes time for Christmas. And just so you know, I love nativity sets. I think that they are a powerful visual representation of what we celebrate every Christmas. The reality that God sent his son from heaven to be born as a baby, just like we were, to experience all the hardships of life, life just like we do, and then to die on a cross, to rise from the dead, to prove that he is in fact God in the flesh, God's son, to set us free from the power of sin and death. And that's the whole reason we celebrate Christmas. It's the whole reason we set nativity scenes out. But have you noticed there are some pretty weird nativity scenes out there? I saw one the other day. This is a true story. There's baby Jesus in the middle, Santa Claus on one side, a U.S. Army soldier on the other but the worst part, or maybe the best part, depending on how you look at it, baby Jesus looked like he was a balding man in his 40. He had bulging eyes and three chins. Okay, true story. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. It just, it kind of, the Christmas spirit was lost when I looked. I was like, ah, I don't really think that that's 100% accurate, but I couldn't help myself. And so I went to Google and I, I searched strange nativity scenes. And I would love to share with you some of the things that I found. Okay, so here's the first one that I found. Barbie and Ken. This is pretty good, actually. You got all the main players there. The only thing that I see wrong with this one is that everybody's Caucasian and they are wearing some really finely tailored clothes for people that live out in the field and that are peasants, right? But they got all the main characters. And so this one isn't too bad. But then I found this DIY version straight out of someone's oven, okay? Now, I'm going to give them, oh, go back, go back. I'm going to give them points for style here because, I mean, just look at that. What do, you, what do you say? But here's my issue with this one. If you know anything about the Old Testament, Old Testament Jews can't eat pork, and this whole thing is made of pork. <laughs> Jesus couldn't literally step near this thing, and so points for style, but I don't know. And then there's this one. If you like art, abstract art, you've got this one. Uh, if you like right angles, and like this is perfect, and here's what's really cool. All those pieces fit in that little box. Very minimalistic, right? This, this is almost perfect. And then last but not least, we have this modern rendition, okay? We've got the organic cow over here, the shepherds watching them. You've got the three wise men on segways with their Amazon deliveries for sweet little baby Jesus. You've got mom and dad snapping the selfie, mom's sipping out of her Starbucks cup. And check this out, solar panels, right? Because yeah, it's, that's what we do now, right? Now, all of those are cute and funny, 
and mildly offensive in their own way. But from a nativity perspective, they all have the main characters, right? You've got the, the mom and the dad and the baby huddled around a manger in, in a barn. There's animals, there's shepherds, there's some wise men. But would you believe me if I told you that the vast majority of nativity scenes are missing a really important character? Have you ever seen a nativity scene that looks like this? With a red dragon waiting to pounce and eat sweet little porcelain waving baby Jesus. I bet you haven't, right? So what's this all about? It seems a little out of place, but believe it or not, according to scripture, this is actually a biblically accurate nativity scene. Because apparently, according to scripture, on that first Christmas, almost 2,000 years ago, there was a red dragon looming somewhere in the backdrop, and he wasn't there to celebrate. He was actually there to destroy. Now, as Paul mentioned earlier, as a church family, we've been reading through scripture this whole year. We started back in Genesis in, in January, and we've been reading for the last 12 months. We have hit all 65 or 65 books of the 66 books of the Bible. And today we're looking at the last book of scripture, the book of Revelation. And just in case you've never, ever read the book of Revelation, I want to let you in on a little secret. It's a doozy. It's a doozy. Okay. And so it falls into the category of apocalyptic literature, which is just really a fancy way of saying that it foretells of supernaturally inspired and cataclysmic events that will transpire at the end of the world. And that's what we're going to be discussing on Christmas Eve. So if you are new or visiting, we're so glad that you're here. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. We hope that you'll give us a try when the new year kicks in. But this is actually really important. And to be fair, when we think of Christmas, what do we think of? We think of Old Testament prophecies that were given hundreds of years before Jesus was born about a virgin that would give birth to a son that would be the hope of the world. He would be born in Bethlehem. We're so familiar with that story. And then in Luke chapter two, the gospel of Luke, we read about that virgin named Mary giving birth to her son. She names him Jesus and the shepherds come, angels appear and three wise men come and show up to celebrate his arrival as the Messiah by giving him presents and gifts. But in Matthew's gospel, Matthew records a really interesting story that took place right after that first Christmas. And honestly, it's not a very heartwarming story. It's terrifying when you really read into the details. So we're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. The wise men had just left town. This is what Matthew 2, 13 tells us. When they, the wise men, had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search and kill this child. Now, Herod was the king over that area in this time. Look at verse 14. So Joseph got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and they left for Egypt. Look at verse 16. When King Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, those are just the wise men, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. Now let's hit pause. Can you even imagine living in a world like that? Can you imagine experiencing a tragedy like that? Who would be so wicked as to issue a command to kill all of these innocent boys two years old and under. 
Now, I read somewhere that around the time of Jesus's birth, Bethlehem may have been around 500 to 1,000 people, which is actually about the size of our church family between our two campuses. And so I went and looking in our database and discovered that we have about 35 little boys that are two years old or under in the Genesis church family. And I want you to imagine how awful it would be if local and state officials issued a command that said all the little boys in Genesis church were to be terminated. And imagine the horror of the National Guard sneaking in in Noblesville and Carmel to carry out those terrible orders. Can you imagine being those parents or those grandparents or associated with those families in any way? That's a terrifying thing to think about, right? We'd rather not think about it. But according to Matthew's gospel, that is what happened. In the town of Bethlehem, where Jesus was born shortly after he arrived on this earth, and it would have been an event that would have rocked that small community for generations. It would have scarred them. Now I want to take you to a similar scene that's recorded for us in the book of Revelation chapter 12. Now, before we get there, I want to tell you this. Revelation was written by a guy named John, and John wrote the Gospel of John, the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he also wrote the book of Revelation. But here's the best part about John. John was one of Jesus's closest friends and followers when he walked this earth. And in Revelation 12, John pulls back a veil that separates our physical world from the spiritual world. And he does that to show us a precise moment in history that sounds a whole lot like what we just read in Matthew chapter two. So let's pick it up in Revelation chapter 12, verse one. It says this, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 hordes and seven crowns on its heads and a tail, its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment that it was born. Now, if you were going to sing a song to celebrate that, are you going to sing Silent Night? The first song that came to mind for me was It's the End of the World as We Know It by R.E.M. or Highway to Hell by ACDC. It sounds terrifying, right? You're not singing Silent Night. So what do we do about that dragon? Do we just assume that maybe John had a little too much eggnog and wrote his dream down and we're supposed to like take it or leave it? Or is it possible that this dragon sighting in Revelation 12 has something to do with the Christmas story that we just read in Matthew chapter two? And so in order to answer that question, I think we have to dive into Revelation 12 and pick it apart a little bit at a time. So let's go back to Revelation 12 verse one. And we find out right away, it says, a great sign appeared in heaven. Now, I want you to pay attention. This word sign, it means vision or symbol. And Revelation is filled with signs and visions and symbols. But it says that there was a great sign. A woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and she was about to give birth. Now, at first glance, who do you think of when you think of a woman at Christmas that's about to give birth? You think of Mary, right? Well, John describes this woman as like a queen, right? She's got a crown on her head. She's clothed with the sun. She's her, the moon is her footstool. And Mary was not a queen. 
She was a poor peasant girl. So who are we talking about here? Now, this is interesting. Throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is often referred to as the wife or the bride of God. And the Old Testament prophets predicted that God's chosen Messiah would be born into the nation of Israel. So from an Old Testament Jewish perspective, this pregnant woman in Revelation 12 is referring to the faithful community of Israel who had been waiting for God to send his promised Messiah through the bloodline of King David. They'd been waiting for hundreds of years for this to happen. Now, from a New Testament perspective, Matthew and Luke in their gospel accounts, they tell us that that woman's name, she was a virgin and her name was Mary. And she gave birth to a child named Jesus and he is the hope of the world. But what about all that language of being clothed with the sun and the the moon as her footstool and the crown on her head? What's that all about? Well, this isn't telling us that Mary, Jesus's mother, is the queen of the universe, as some believe. Instead, it's a picture of God's divine work in the virgin birth of Jesus. And some scholars believe it's actually hinting at the fact that Jesus's birth caused the entire universe to stop and take notice at God's hand at work in the story of redemption among humanity because he became like one of us. But some scholars would also say that all of the astronomy that's mentioned there actually are talking about constellations to tell us when specifically Jesus was born. But let's talk about that dragon. Look at verses three and four. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon. Okay, its tail swept away a third of the stars. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour the child. Now, there's so many descriptions in this verse, but here's the important thing to remember. The dragon is not good. He came to devour that baby. Now, if you keep reading down to verse nine, John tells us who this dragon is. He says this, he's the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. Now, maybe all this talk about Satan and the devil sounds scary and it seems out of place for Christmas, but here's what's fascinating. It's interesting to note back in verse one, okay, it said that a great sign appeared and it was the sign of the woman about to give birth. But when the dragon appears, it's just another sign. So here's what's interesting. The great sign is that God was at work allowing Jesus to be born as the promised Messiah through the nation of Israel. And that's a much greater sign. And the sign of Satan, yeah, it's just a sign. He's just a dragon. So we don't need to be afraid of them. We just need to know what these signs mean. And in Revelation 12, John is using powerful imagery to let us know that the role that Satan has always played throughout the course of history is that he is the ultimate enemy of God who is constantly at work, spreading chaos and wickedness in his efforts to absolutely destroy the earth and all humanity. And just in case you're wondering, here's some things that Jesus had to say about Satan. Jesus described Satan as the father of lies. Jesus said he was a murderer from the very beginning who has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. The apostle Peter described Satan as a lion that is prowling around looking for someone to, listen to the word, devour. That's the word again. The the dragon is gonna devour the baby. Now that word devour just tells us that Satan's character is that he is a destroyer of life. But let's go back to the original question. What does all this have to do with Christmas? Well, let's keep reading. Look at verse five. The woman gave birth to a son, a male child, 
who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Now, again, this is speaking about the birth of Jesus as Israel's Messiah, who would eventually come to be the eternal king of kings. And look at this. Her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Snatched up to God. What on earth is all that about? Well, we learned about this earlier in Matthew 2. Satan was working through Herod in his attempts to try to destroy Jesus as a human baby. But the writers of the New Testament tell us that Joseph got Jesus and Mary out of town. They went to Egypt where they were safe. And eventually they came back and they lived in Nazareth. And Jesus grew up there as a man. And for 30 years, he lived in obscurity. But then at age 30, he starts his ministry. And then by the age of 33, Jesus died on a cross to pay for the sins of all humanity. And that's really tragic, but here's the good news of the message of the gospel. Jesus did not stay dead. He rose from the dead three days later. That's why we celebrate Easter. And he proved that he had the power to conquer sin and death. And in the process, here's the good news. He conquered Satan and he conquered Satan's power over me and over you and over all of us. But here's what's fascinating. The gospel writers of Matthew, Luke, And Mark, along with the Apostle Paul, all tell us that 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. And the book of Acts tells us he sat down at the right hand of God. That's exactly what John is saying in Revelation 12, 5. He just gives us the Notes version. He says he was born and he was snatched up where he sat at God's throne. And if you keep reading, we discover that Satan's inability to destroy Jesus and his humanity actually led to a war that started in heaven between God's holy angels and Satan's fallen demons. Look at verse seven. It says this war broke out in heaven. Michael, who is the archangel, the leader of the angels and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven and the great dragon was hurled down That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with them. So John's vision in Revelation 12 is meant to help his readers understand there is a powerful spiritual battle and it's raging right now. It began in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve gave in to the serpent's temptation And here's what's interesting. By the time you get to the end of Revelation, that serpent in the garden has grown into an enormous red dragon. And he is out to destroy us. His name is Satan. And his name, Satan, it means accuser because he is always accusing every one of us before God for our sinfulness. But he especially hates those of us who have pledged our faith to follow Jesus. And so what does he do? Well, he wages war. Look at Revelation 12, verses 13 and 17. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Now remember, if this woman is the nation of Israel, can you name another nation on this planet that has ever been persecuted as much as the nation of Israel? It's pretty fascinating, right? But look at verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman And he went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Listen to this. Those who keep God's commands and who hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Here's what's really cool. That's the church. That's non-Jewish people that have placed, or Jewish people that have placed their faith in who Jesus is. So he's talking about us. But here's the picture. 
The spiritual battle is taking place all around us and it is as real as this interaction that we're having right now. And we are facing a very dangerous enemy who wants to destroy us. And then I realize this doesn't feel like the warm and fuzzy Christmas message that you were probably expecting. But here's what's interesting. That same war that you and I are in, that same battle and that same enemy is the same war and the same enemy that Jesus fought when he walked this earth. And so this is one of the main reasons that we are going to study through the gospel of John together as a church family next year. Because we want to learn everything we can about who Jesus is and how we can follow his example. Because Jesus knows how to live a life of pain and how to persevere and how to endure. He knows how to overcome fear. He knows how to forgive, even to forgive his enemies. He knows how to keep the faith, even when it's easy to want to give up. And so we can learn a lot from Jesus's example. But here's the best news. Jesus's resurrection from the dead proves that Satan has been defeated once and for all. And even though the battle continues right now, the war has already been decided. And Satan's power to accuse me and you, to accuse us, it's been overcome through Jesus's victory on the cross and through our faith in Jesus. And if you keep reading in Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 through 12, there is this amazing declaration. I think it's a song actually that is that is listed. Listen to this, Revelation 10, uh, 12, 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And then listen to verse 11. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink away from death. Now, I want to pause here and I want to pay really close attention to the words that are listed here. Because we live in a world that is filled with fear and anxiety and doubt and hate. Hate between people, but hate, between, or hate for the things of God. And that hate has a source. And the source is Satan. And living in this world, Scripture tells us this, is only going to get more and more difficult for those of us that follow Jesus. But here in Revelation 12, 11, we're reminded of the role that we play by living out Jesus's victory over Satan in our life by having faith in what Jesus has done for us. And that faith is lived out. It's confirmed by a life of loyalty to and for Jesus. And so verse 11 reminds us that's the kind of faith in Jesus that allows us to live boldly to the point that death doesn't have to scare us. We read this in the book of Hebrews a few weeks ago. We've been set free from the fear of death. And so look at what Revelation 12, 12 says. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. And so here's the reality. Satan knows he's been defeated. He knows his time is limited. He knows that Jesus is gonna come again to destroy him once and for all. But in the meantime, his goal is to wreak havoc in our lives and to discourage us. And let's be honest, does it not feel like we're living in a world right now where Satan is winning? It doesn't feel like we are on the winning side of things. We live in a world that is dark and where our hope seems to be fading more and more every day. We're in the midst of a seemingly endless pandemic and all we hear about are new variants of this virus 
and we should be afraid. There's constant political hostility that we all get caught up in all the time or we get caught in the crossfires. There are racial tensions on the verge of eruptions. There's a 24-7 news cycle that keeps us living in fear and doubt. There is a growing number of severe natural disasters all over the world and they seem to get closer to home all the time. And all of that is leading to a rise in mental health issues and an overall sense of generalized anxiety that we all feel all the time. And so our world doesn't just feel dark, it's dark. And Satan does his very best work in the darkness. But you know, that darkness, I don't think that darkness should scare us. I really truthfully believe that the darkness that we live in should just serve as a sign of the times for us. Because if you continue reading through the book of Revelation, you're gonna discover that things are gonna get a lot harder before they ever get better. But that's why you gotta read to the very end of the book. In Revelation 19, we read that Jesus will return and he will return in power. He won't be a mere mortal. He'll be the eternal king of kings that will come to conquer sin and death and destroy Satan once and for all. He promises to come to restore everything that's been destroyed, to mend everything that's been broken. And in his own words, he says, I am going to make everything new. But in the meantime, we live in a world that feels dark and alone, but we're not alone. Jesus has come once to defeat Satan and he's coming again to destroy him once and for all. And so I wanna, I wanna bring you back to Revelation 12, 11 here. It says, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. This is how we participate in Jesus's victory over sin and death. We triumph over Satan by the blood of the lamb, by faith in what he has done for us. And by the word of our testimony, a life of faithfulness that is lived for Jesus, that doesn't even shrink back from the fear of death. Now, when you came in, you should have received a candle that looks just like this. I want you to take your candle out right now. You know what we celebrate at Christmas? We celebrate the fact that Jesus left the comforts of heaven and he came into our world, as John would say in his gospel, to be the true light of the world that would get light get, that would give light and life to all men. And so as a representation a representation of that light we want to allow that light to spread across this room. We don't we want to allow that light to spread across this room as a reminder of the faith that we have and who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And even though things seem dark, we are called to live out our victory over Satan through the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. So I'm gonna pray, but I wanna invite you to leave your eyes open and to watch that light spread, to enjoy the way that it looks and to be a a visual reminder of what our life and our faith lived out for Jesus looks like. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your word and I'm thankful that you have revealed the truth about your coming through the book of Revelation. Would you make us aware of the spiritual battle that we live in? 
Would you help us to rejoice to know, Jesus, you experienced the same spiritual battle on this earth that we live in? Would you help us to follow your example? And would you help us to participate in your victory over Satan by putting our faith in your blood shed for us and living out the word of our testimony, a life of loyalty and faithfulness to you? Jesus, help us Help us not just to sit back in our faith, but to pursue you. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we thank you. And we praise you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.